0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com
1: slash four keys and download your free copy. I think that in the broader self-help genre, there is a lot of making things needlessly complex, making them sound all sciency because That way, the reader thinks that there's some special value or they're getting this special secret. Whereas what we know, looking at decades of research in productivity, well-being, and peak performance, is that most of what matters is just nailing the basics, stuff that is simple, not easy. So there's nothing new here. Well, if it's so simple, why should I buy your book? Why should I read this? What I argue is that that's the point. If someone comes to you with all this new, sexy, bright and shiny object kind of stuff, generally my bullshit detector goes off. Whereas if someone comes to you and says, I'm not going to blow your mind with anything. I'm going to tell you to do the basics, but they're hard. And I'm going to give you a language for it. And I'm going to hold your hand while you do it. That's the kind of person that I want to work with.
2: Uh, Well, it is my pleasure to have you here. So you have a new book out, The Practice of Groundedness, and your co-author from your previous book, Peak Performance, uh, Steve Magnus, was also a guest here and absolutely amazing. Uh, I just finished reading this book, all of which we will get into. But uh, before we actually get into the book, as you know from having heard the show, I want to start by asking you about something that has nothing to do with the book. And that is what social group were you a part of in high school? And what impact did that end up having on what you've ended up doing with your life and your career?
1: The social group that I was a part of in high school um, was really the football community. So I was a, I would say, pretty good high school football player, um, which would translate to a a bad college football player, but someone just on the cusp of being able to take the game to the next level. So I was the captain of the team. I played all four years. And um, the group of, guys that we had at my high school that made that team it was a really special group. The The team hadn't been to the playoffs in 30 years in both my junior and senior year. We won our division. We were competitive in the playoffs and um, it was also really neat because it was one of those um, like modern day feel good football team stories where there were so many really dedicated, driven, student athletes that took the student part seriously. So Mm -hmm. I remember that our offensive line had a cumulative GPA of like 3.9. But then there were also these kids that are your more stereotypical, just phenomenal athlete that don't really care about school and are on the verge of perhaps getting into real trouble. And they became a part of this football community and their grades started to go up and they started to realize that you could be both cool and be a nerd at the same time. And um, that was a really neat thing to be a part of in in high school. And now, obviously, my relationship with football, having a young son is so complex because we continue to learn how dangerous the game is. Yet I've also seen firsthand the real benefits that football has, especially for kids that might not have other outlets to feel a part of something. Yeah. Where uh, where where uh, did you actually grow up? I grew up in a smaller town called Farmington Hills, Michigan. Um, it's about 30, 35 minutes outside of Detroit. Okay, cool. Yeah, I mean,
2: I, I spent seven years in Texas. So as you might imagine, football was kind of a part of my life, although I basically realized I was getting the shit beat out of me in seventh grade. You know, when they do those tackling drills where, uh, you know, the defensive lineman and offensive linemen go up against each other they had me go up against this like, kid who was 300 pounds, because in, seventh, in Texas, there are seventh graders the size of grown men. And he pushed me back 20 yards, the whole team laughed. And I was like, okay, I'm definitely not meant for this. But, uh, but the thing is, when I watch a TV show like Friday Night Lights, for example, I see something really magical about football. And so obviously, that leads to a whole lot of questions. But the first being, what misperceptions do you think that those of us who are not student athletes in high school have about student athletes? I mean, obviously the first one being that they only care about school. Like, What do we not see about the lives that you lead when somebody like me is a band geek?
1: Yeah, I think that um, student athletes are just as insecure as everyone else in high school. And perhaps part of the reason that So many put on a facade of being tough or super cool is because perhaps they're even more insecure than the quote unquote band geek. Um, And I think that it just goes to show that most kids between 14 and 18 who are still developing identities and a sense of self and a reputation and what they want to be known for and hormones are flowing and all that stuff. I mean, everyone's just insecure. So at the time, did I think I was super cool because I was on the football team? Absolutely. Looking back on that, was that born out of nothing but insecurity? Absolutely. I could have been <laughs> just cool if I was the, or just as cool if I was the head of like the model car team. It doesn't matter. Follow your interests.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: Well, what about
2: coaches in, in high school? Like what impact did they end up having on where you've ended up? Because I know that you now coach people. Uh And every time I watch Friday Night Lights and I see, you know, the Coach Taylor character, I always think to myself, like, why did I not have somebody like that in my life? I mean, I was fortunate that I had a band director who took a profound interest in me uh, from sixth through almost seventh through ninth grade. But I wonder, you know, what impact your coaches had on you and the way that you think about leadership, the way that you think about performance uh, and all the things you ended up doing later.
1: Well, I've I had two very different experiences with coaching in high school, and no one's ever asked me this question, so thanks. It's really interesting to um to reflect on this in, in real time here. Football program had a good coach. I wouldn't say like, you know, he was a father figure or anything too crazy, but he was a good coach and he cared. The basketball program, which was another sport that I played and I was quite good at, um, was just absolutely awful. He was the high school version of Bobby Knight, that coach at Indiana that's just (laughs) throwing chairs and yelling at everyone. And he really coached from a place of fear and power born out of fear. So he wanted everybody to fear him. He made you feel terrible. He would go off on you in a second. I remember once he told me that, you know, not everyone can play the piano. Some people need to carry the piano and some people need to sit and fill out spreadsheets billing for the piano. That's who you're going to be. And I was like a 14-year-old kid, and I'm just like, fuck. Um, So I think that I very quickly realized that there's these two extremes of coaching. One is coaching from a place of love and freedom, where you coach someone towards independence, not dependence. That is, you try to make yourself useless as a coach, because you equip that person with the decision-making skills that they need in the moment. The other way to coach is from a place of fear and towards dependence, where you Mm -hmm. develop a relationship with the person you're coaching, in this case, the athlete, but it can be an entrepreneur, an artist, a writer, you name it, where they feel like they need you and they're scared of you. And the vast, vast, vast majority of research um, shows that it's the coaches who coach from a place of love and towards independence who tend to have higher performing people under them. Even though in the short term, coaching from a place of fear works really well. You freak someone out, they're timid, they're going to do exactly what you say. But that is not a sustainable way to build good people. Again, whether this is athletes or outside of sport.
2: Yeah, well, let's talk specifically outside of sports because uh, I think that what's fascinating to me is self improvement in a lot of ways. Like the entire industry is built on dependence. Uh, we, we did an entire series on cults uh, of personal development. Um, we had Sarah from Nixium here, uh, the guy who wrote uh, a cult deprogramming book, and and several others. And there's a sort of interesting paradox. I mean, Landmark Forum is a perfect example. This Warner Earhart, the founder, uh, and I've shared this before. Dan Kennedy, the copywriter, is apparently in you know, a barbershop with him. He said, sum up the whole S thing, which that's what it used to be called for me in one sentence. He said, we sell independence, but we breed dependence. And the funny thing is, like I, I, I've done Landmark. I think the information is phenomenal. I think the organization is a shit show. Uh, and who knows? Maybe they'll sue me if they're hearing this. But, uh the thing that struck me about that is that the people who end up getting immensely like just powerful results are the ones who never go back. Like They realize exactly what you're talking about. So when you think about that in the context of self-help, I mean, in a lot of ways, the work that you and I do falls into that, that genre, um, how do you get people to take in knowledge from authority figures without becoming dependent on them?
1: Ooh, this is a doozy. So here we go. I think that, well, there's a few things, and maybe your editor will cut out all my stuttering, but it's because you asked a really um, complex question. And I've been known to do that to, that to people.
2: <laughs> there's a lot.
1: <laughs> to, you're good at your job. There's a lot to unpack here. So the first thing is this I think that in the broader self help genre, there is a lot of making things needlessly complex, making them sound all sciency, because that way the reader thinks that there's some special value or they're getting the special secret. Whereas what we know, looking at decades of research in productivity, well-being, and peak performance, is that most of what matters is just nailing the basics, stuff that is simple, not easy. So the first thing is you've already got this barrier because I've got to compete with Dave Asprey, who's telling people that if they put special <laughs> butter in their coffee, they're going to feel like Superman or Superwoman. And I don't buy that. Then the second thing is, well, if it's so simple, why should I buy your book? Why should I read this? And there, I think, is the crux of your question. I In the book, I call this, and, and just in life, I call this the knowing-doing gap. Yeah. So first, you have to know something. But just because you know it doesn't mean that you're going to do it. And doing the simple things to perform well, to be productive, it is not easy. And Mm -hmm. my role as an author, as a coach, is to often just walk the path with someone, hold their hand along the way, give them encouragement and help them stay on the path. Mm -hmm. You know, there is nothing complex or super power, structure, authority from me telling people the benefits of moving their body for 45 minutes a day or of being present or of focusing on being patient, right? These are virtues that modern science now of course supports but are as old as the oldest ancient wisdom traditions. So there's nothing new here. What I argue is that that's the point. If someone comes to you with all this new, sexy, bright and shiny object kind of stuff, generally my bullshit detector goes off.
2: Yours or if someone mine, comes both. to
1: you and says, I'm not going to blow your mind with anything. I'm going to tell you to do the basics, but they're hard. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give you a language for it. And I'm going to hold your hand while you do it. That's the kind of person that I want to work with.
3: A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times.
2: Well, okay. So let, let's talk about this balance between tough love and fear. And I'll give you some context uh, for this. So I had a mentor who is funny because the version of him that people on my podcast and people on you know at our conference get is this like highly motivational, inspiring guy. And I'm like, yeah, I get the version that kicked my ass every week. And at the same time, I realized that he was actually preparing me for a high stakes situation. So you know I, I had a, a breakup that made a mess of my head and I kind of went off the deep end. And when I told him, I was like, Greg, yeah, I'm human too. And he said, yeah, Srini, you don't get to make that excuse because of the position you're in. And that was really tough to hear at the time. And then I realized now five, six years later, after a round of venture funding, book deal with the publisher, speaking agents, that he was absolutely right. Because I have a public presence, The way that I act has a very big impact on a lot of other people in my life. And yet, you know, in a lot of ways, if any other person was dealing with him, they might say he was coaching through fear. But at the time, it seemed like that. And
1: in retrospect,
2: I realized it was tough love.
1: And I think that there's definitely a time and a place for it. And it sounds like you had already developed a really trusting relationship with this person. Is that right?
2: Yeah, I mean, I he came up with the name unmistakable creative. I wouldn't be where I am without him today. Um, but that those three or four months definitely strained our relationship. Not only that, he was basically told that he was going to die in nine months.
1: Ooh. Yeah. So, you know, without knowing, I and mean, we could probably unpack these details forever. But without knowing the details, I think they're like the key is that it was already built on a lot of trust and love. And Mm -hmm. I think there's a difference between tough love, which is the word that you used and just fear-based coaching and tough love requires that there's some like love and connection and trust there first. So I think there's a role for a coach to tell you what you don't want to hear. I think it's important that a coach is able to do that, but I think it has to be built on a foundation of deep caring and um, mutual respect and trust. Uh,
2: Well, I think there's this distinction in my mind between what you want to hear and what you need to hear. Um, You've written books. I remember I I worked with a writing coach and she didn't sugarcoat feedback for shit. It was amazing how, you know, ruthless she was. And I specifically chose her for that reason. And I realized after about a month, I was like, she's not telling me what I want to hear. She's telling me what I need to hear. And my books are a thousand times better because of it.
1: Yep. And that takes a lot of um, self-security on your part. Right. Because it's it's easy to find someone that tells you exactly what you said, what you want to hear. But that person's probably not going to make you much better. Mm
2: -hmm. Uh, Well, let's shift gears a bit. Walk me through the trajectory from you know being this high school athlete to how you end up doing what you do today, writing books, uh, coaching and then doing all the things you've done, because that doesn't seem like the most natural uh, or linear path, which is pretty much the story of everybody I've ever interviewed.
1: Right. So. I always wanted to be a writer. And I mentioned that high school athlete, but also a nerd. So I was a good student, I cared about school. And I was a part of the school newspaper. And I thought that I was gonna go to journalism school. So way back, all the way at age 16, 17, I'm like, I'm gonna be a writer when I grow up. So I applied to the Medill School of Journalism at Northwestern, which is the top journalism program in the country. and I didn't get in. And like most young teenagers, I figured, all right, like I guess journalism's not for me, so I'm going to go study economics at University of Michigan. And um, even though I wasn't doing writing formally at school, it was very clear that that's where my strength was. So I eventually quit economics because the calculus that was needed for it, I just wasn't good at and didn't want to do. So then I started studying like organizational behavior and psychology. So I gravitated more and more towards these quote unquote softer sciences. And I excelled in anything that had to do with storytelling, PowerPoint presentations, essays, case reports, anything that involved a spreadsheet I was no good at. I didn't enjoy (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Out of school, like most um, you know, good students, high achieving that have no idea what they want to do with their life because they're only 22, uh, I did what at the time everyone was doing in that um, situation, which is get a job at a big management consulting company. So I went straight from school to work for McKinsey and Company. And same story. Anything that involved a financial model there pushed me to the edge. I didn't like it. I wasn't particularly good at it. But man, writing PowerPoint decks, I was an (laughs) all-star. And in hindsight, I could have never known this at the time, but being a management consultant is great training for writing nonfiction. Because there's a thorny problem and you have a thesis about how you're going to solve it. And then you do all this research, you interview people, and then you tell a story about different ways to solve the problem. And if you're any good at your job, you also identify how you might be wrong and address those things too which is basically what a good nonfiction book does. But I didn't know any of that, right? So I'm a management consultant at McKinsey. I'm making PowerPoint decks. That's where my skill sets lie. Client hands, telling stories. And I get a really interesting opportunity to follow one of the partners at McKinsey to the White House to go work for Barack Obama doing health reform. So I took that. I'm a young 24-year-old kid. I'm single. I don't need much money. I'm like, hell yeah, I'm going to get a job and have an office in the executive building. And This sounds great. And I got really into healthcare. But then I realized that, um, A, I have no interest in politics or policy. Things move too slow. It's way too much of a status game. And B, our healthcare system is broken. It's more like a disease care system. So I became fascinated by, well, what does it take to be well? So then I went to public health school. And in public health school, I got super into triathlon. And this is, oh, ten, eleven, twelve 10, 11, 12 years ago, enter WordPress. Everybody and their sister has a blog. So I start blogging about triathlon. Now, nobody is reading the blog. Maybe my girlfriend at the time was reading it, but even she wasn't reading it, right? The only (laughs) readership was me. I was doing this to feel cool. But it was also regular writing. So this common thread through all these random strands is I was writing because I enjoyed writing. And eventually, some blog post that I read was shared with someone and they offered me a chance to write. So I just kept writing and writing and writing. And um, like so many stories, what started out as a hobby and a side hustle, I just pursued it because I found it fun. And then gradually over the last 10, 15 years, I've been able to make it what I do professionally. And um, the coaching part, I think, is kind of born from the public health education, the time at McKinsey and Company, my time going all the way back to high school being an athlete, that I think it's really important to also have some skin in the game. Uh So it's one thing just to write about these concepts from the ivory tower perched in a nice, comfortable chair with a laptop looking at papers. It's another thing to actually go work with people on applying the things that you write about because it gets messy and you get pattern recognition and you see what sounds good but doesn't work and you see what sounds good and does work. So now I wear those two hats. So a very circuitous path, that could have never made sense while I was doing it, but in hindsight makes perfect sense. And I know that that's such a theme on um, your podcast, and I don't know, probably 95% of the guests would say the same, which is it's really just about being curious and following your interest within reason. Yeah. So I was also really interested in football and basketball, but I didn't decide to try to play in the NBA or the NFL because that wouldn't have been within reason. Right. So. That's like the advice that I give all young people that ask. I said, you know, do the work if you're smart, a lot of quantity, increase your surface area for luck and follow your interest within reason. Mm. You know, it's funny, uh, based on what that last piece you said this is why
2: anytime I do any one-on-one work with somebody or even teach a class, I'm like I preface everything by saying I want you to consider the possibility that everything I'm telling you is bullshit, because it might be for you. Uh, but we'll come back to that. Um I'm really struck by how parallel our paths are because I applied to the Northwestern School of Music and didn't get in, uh, went to Berkeley and I know you guys probably refer to, you know, Berkeley as the Michigan of the West Coast and we
1: refer to Michigan as the Berkeley of the Midwest. Uh, And then I lived, you know, I lived in Oakland for like five years. So I love Berkeley. It's a, it's got a, it's not Ann Arbor, of course, but it's got a special place in my heart too.
2: Well, so, and I was an econ major, uh, but unlike yourself and just like yourself, I pretty much shined anytime anything involved doing PowerPoints, presentations, storytelling. I didn't figure that out until my junior year. By that point, my GPA had plummeted um, and I ended up just taking a sales job. I didn't have the grades to go to a place like a McKinsey. But the question that comes from that is when somebody is young, particularly like I was at that age or you know anybody is, uh, even somebody listening to this, when they have that moment of you know, I really hate this and I'm not that good at it. Why the hell do they persist through doing something they hate through four years of college because of the the way they've been conditioned? Like, how do they break that? Like, I I realized I missed out on so much that I could have experienced at Berkeley because I did that.
1: So is the question, why do people stay in those... Yeah, like so.
2: Yeah, you know that. For example, you're like, okay, I suck at economics. It took me three and a half years and a 2.97 GPA to to realize, oh, I'm not any good at this, and I barely got out of Berkeley basically because I just had enough requirements just to change my major um, to environmental economics and get the hell out of there. Like the degree was just a way to get out. I didn't actually get anything from it. I remember I knew I was at a low point and like wow, I'm listening to this guy talk about how to maximize the amount of milk he can get from a cow using a utility function. Funny enough, economics plays a much more interesting role in my life
1: now than it did then because of what I do. You know, I think that the honest answer is probably luck. I don't think I was like an exceptional 20-year-old. I think that Econ 401, that's what the course was called at Michigan, was just so damn hard And I was just so fed up with it that I didn't care what my parents said. I didn't care what my friends said. I didn't care that the undergraduate business school at Michigan was like the thing that everyone wanted to get into. I'm just like, look, I know that if I start getting C's and D's, I'm not going to get a good job out of college. And again, put yourself in 20-year-old mode. You want to get a good job out of college. That's at least a lot of people do. That's certainly what I did. So it was a very, it's funny, it was a very economic decision. It wasn't like following my curiosity or passion back then. It was simply like, if I stay on this path, I'm going to get D's and I'm going to have to work really hard for C's and no one gets jobs with a 2.0 average. So I better change this. And that was it. There's no like greater enlightened stories. It's, um, yeah, I never realized the irony that it was probably the most economic decision, economically driven decision I ever made was cost benefit to quit economics.
2: Yeah. I mean, I, I wish I had had that foresight. Trust me. I know what it's like because I'm sure the people who go to Michigan are just like people who go to Berkeley, given that you got a job at McKinsey. like They hire one or two Berkeley grads, and I'm guessing it's the same at Michigan.
1: Yeah. And there's no way if I would have gone to the business school, I would have been hired because my GPA would have sucked. Yeah.
2: Well, let's shift yours and let's actually get into the book, Um, I think that the thing that struck me most about this was uh, you opened the book by talking about the fact that you wrote two books before. One was about peak performance and the other was about the passion paradox. And this book, in a lot of ways, seems like a counter argument to what you've talked about in your previous books. Uh, So what prompted you to want to write this book of all the books that you could write?
1: Well, I wouldn't necessarily say counter argument. I would say um, a precondition to the Mm -hmm. other two books. So I like to think of peak performance as when you're at the top of the mountain and everything is clicking. Here's how you stay at the top of the mountain. Here are the evidence-based strategies and practices that will keep you there. And I like to think of the passion paradox as how do you get the motivation to climb the mountain and how do you make sure that you control that motivation and passion and it doesn't control you. But what I hadn't written about was the base of the mountain. And without a strong foundation, without a strong base, anytime there's truly rough weather, the whole thing is fragile. And like so many people, you write what you know, I experienced a period of truly rough weather in my life. And all the tools that I had written about and that are defensible and that I know, they weren't working for me. And I personally had to go back and rewrite the base of my own mountain and once I got to the other side of that experience, I became intellectually interested in, hey, how come I overlook this in the first place? And what does the evidence have to say about the patterns that help someone build a really solid foundation from which they can then rise and perform really well? Uh,
2: well, you open the book by defining the term heroic individualism, which you say is an ongoing game of one-upsmanship against both yourself and others paired with the limiting belief that measurable achievement is the only arbiter of success. Even if you do a good job hiding it on the outside with heroic individualism, you chronically feel like you never quite reach the finish line that is lasting fulfillment. And yet we live in a society that basically ranks us by measurable achievement, particularly now that you can see everybody's stupid fan and follower counts. You know, We put billionaires on the covers of magazines. We celebrate measurable achievement. So when you live in a society that basically ranks you using measurable achievement, how do you make that transition from heroic individualism uh, and measurable achievement to lasting fulfillment and what you call groundedness?
1: Right. I think that it is why I wrote the book. It is a huge freaking challenge. Um, It very much requires swimming upstream and going against the grain. Because uh, you are a hundred percent right, like we the water we drink and the air we breathe in this culture is filled with heroic individualism, so it involves really making a practice of the six principles that are the basis of the book, and these aren't principles that I come up with, right These are the principles that cut across all the modern based therapies, cognitive science, neuroscience, and also stoicism, Buddhism, Taoism. Um, many forms of Judeo-Christianity as well. And it does require, like, there's a reason, right? It's so funny that the offline before we were talking about publishing, my publisher was very keen on the title, Get Grounded. Uh And I'm like, no, 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 like, that misses the point. Like, you don't just get grounded. It's not a switch that you flip. It's an ongoing practice. And I think so many people think that, oh, they can just turn on this switch or have this hack or this magical habit that will then suddenly ground them in this heroic individualistic culture. And that's not the case at all. It's an ongoing practice. And to be honest, if I shoot 60 to 70% of the the stuff in my book, that's a good day or a good week. So it's really hard. And um, I think that it also comes down to, can you take that external stuff, your dashboards, your sales ranks, your follower counts, your fan counts, whatever it is, and can you have a playful relationship with it? Can you treat it more like a game and have a sense of self and identity and self-worth that is deeper than that game? And if it is, of course, the paradox is you play the game better. Because if that game is all that you have and your whole identity is that game, you are very fragile. Because when things go south, that means you as a person, your identity goes south. Whereas you have a deeper sense of self, a deeper identity, what I would call a more grounded identity, then it frees you up to not care as much about that game. And getting back to performing from a place of fear versus a place of love, most people perform better when they're in a more relaxed state.
2: Yeah. Well, let's get into the first principle, uh, which is acceptance. And the thing that you say is that um We bury our heads in the sand or do precisely what society's heroic individuals and superficial success culture tells us to do. Think positive thoughts, numb and distract ourselves, buy stuff and tweet. We engage in frantic compulsory activity, distract ourselves from our problems and our fears. We expect things to get better without ever acknowledging or accepting our true starting point, which it kind of makes me laugh because sometimes I think I'm perpetuating
1: this by creating this show. Say more. Why do you you feel that way?
2: You know, okay. You know, I think that I, I've been hypercritical of a lot of the self-help industry over the last year, mainly because I'm I'm beginning to question a lot of the things um, that I have thought were universal truths as context dependent, because I realized everything that everybody says on this show doesn't apply to everybody who's listening because everybody's life is different. Um, but I think there's this sort of delusional optimism that we have a tendency to perpetuate. And I think that what struck me about this was that you ta- you, what you're talking about is realism here, but not like negative realism. But I think what really, to me, acceptance
1: is it's rational optimism. Yes. I call it tragic optimism, but same thing. Yeah. Uh, so tra- r- rational optimism, I assume what you mean is like non-delusional, like life is hard, being a human is hard, everyone's making it up as they go. And what I call tragic, I would say it's like accepting the inevitable hardships and suffering and challenges of life Mm -hmm. and saying, well, this is what it is. So might as well give it my best shot. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco
2: Distributors, Inc.
3: Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds.
2: Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? basically fight where they're at. Um, And and ironically, they sort of like, oh, this is not where I want to be. I want to make more money. I want to have more, you know, better relationships, whatever it is. So I'm going to just basically bury my head in self-help books, which ironically is a resistance to where you're at in a lot of ways.
1: Yes, and it keeps you stuck there because you like keep trying all of these things without addressing the the true thing that needs to be addressed, or at least not fully. And my answer to that question would be, It's easier in the short term, but harder in the long term. And we're short term thinkers. So if you have big problems in your career, or you have big problems in your relationship, or you have big health problems, being honest with yourself about that is really hard and scary. Drinking alcohol, getting your Twitter or Instagram follower count up, um, buying some stuff, Just trying to continuously get promoted at a job you don't even love, that's a lot easier in the short term because you don't have to face the really hard thing. But in the long term, that's the shit that just wears you down. So this notion of acceptance is really very much tied to playing the long game and realizing that, hey, if we can't accept where we are, then we'll never make meaningful progress on the things that actually matter. And accepting where we are is freaking challenging. And this isn't just for acute problems. I mean, we're a, an area of self-help um, kind of bullshit that I've gotten into recently. And by gotten into, I don't mean like in support of, but trying to have people step back from it is this whole optimization, longevity, health guru, live forever movement. <laughs> oh, and okay, ultimately okay. what they're selling is non-acceptance of death because yeah. accepting death is fucking terrifying. It's hard. Anyone that ever has engaged in spiritual practice knows that at some point you're contemplating, you're meditating and you just start crying because you realize that you're going to die and everything you love is going to die. And that sucks. But by accepting that, you can open your heart and suddenly have compassion for all of our living creatures that also have that knowledge for all other human beings. And that is to me, such a, a more realistic way of living because all this longevity science is built on a house of cards. Every time that there's this magic fix, whether it's resveratrol, antioxidants, cold plunges, you name it, none of it works. Or at least none of it works more than just eating whole foods and exercising. Uh-huh. And B, you're kind of like setting yourself up for these unrealistic expectations of being Superman or Superwoman and being immortal instead of just accepting your short time here. But once you accept that, then it suddenly everything becomes so meaningful. So it's not just acute problems. I think in self-help, it's on a really like broad scale as well.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that makes a perfect segue to talking about the second principle of groundedness, which you say is presence. And you say it's about being. Fully here for what is in front of you. Presence is a concentrated quality of mind that lends itself to strength and stability. If you deliberately practice presence, it can drastically improve your life, both personal and professional. And you say if the goal is to optimize, we shouldn't be focused on doing more for the sake of doing more. Rather, we should be focused on being fully present for the pursuits and people that matter most to us. And I think that that really struck me out of the entire section on presence because uh, I started writing this new book on, on time. Um, called 8,760 hours. I don't know if anybody's gonna publish it and I could care less because I will self-publish it. But um and I wrote a blog post about this and I I, I spent all this you know, time and energy and you know writing about productivity and how to increase it and how to save time and how to hack time, only to come to the realization that this is a resource that you can only spend and do nothing else with. And that the entire premise of the time management industry is false because you can't save it. You can't manage it. You can only decide how to spend it. And so I realized I'm writing a book about spending time, which I think has a lot to do with presence. But there's so much that is standing in the way of our ability to be present in the world that we live in today. So how do we get back to a place of presence with you know, all the craziness and you know, constant input that we're dealing
1: with. Well, my my first question before I answer yours is what's the magic number of the 8760 hours?
2: That's the number of hours in every year.
1: Got it. Love it. Um wow. That's both not so many and so many at the same yeah, time.
2: Yeah. It's well, here's the thing. You get so I I I broke it down and the reason this whole idea came about is I went on a date with a girl who I was like you know what? We didn't have much chemistry. I don't know that we should see each other again. Even if you want to go on a second date, you're really not that into me. And I'd be wasting your time and mine. So I'm not going to do that because I'm about to turn 44 and I don't have much more time left. And I got to talking to my cousin. We were packing to go to the airport and we're talking about all the ways in which humans spend time. And we're like waiting, deciding, doing, being, giving. I mean, those are like our overarching categories. But yeah, that's, that's where it came from. So you're right. It's not a lot of time.
1: Yeah. And then the question, of course, is, is you aptly put it, what you call time, I call attention. Mm-hmm. And I think it's one in the same, because if you're conscious, then you're, you have attention towards something. And I think that it's about setting fairly rigid boundaries. So the way that um, the the literature tackles this problem is twofold. One is you can train yourself to do a better job being present amidst distraction. And the other is that you can try to eliminate distractions. And to date, we know that the latter tends to be a more reliable path to success. So there is a reason that monks find enlightenment in monasteries, not in front of their computer with nine browsers open. Because in monasteries, the noise is turned down, and I think we should learn from them. So for the important things in our life, we have to create the environments that turn down the noise that can facilitate us being present. You could spend hours and hours and hours and hours meditating, but if you are in a busy, frenetic, frantic situation, might you be present more so than the person next to you? Absolutely. But is it going to be the same type of presence as if you're in a distraction-free situation? Absolutely not. So I think that here is another place where kind of traditional self-help gets in the way. There's all these books about becoming more mindful and training your brain and all this stuff, but none of them put an emphasis on your environment. Yet again, what the research shows is that environment is far more powerful. So the way that I like to think about this is... It is about identifying your core values, the things that matter most to you, figuring out how you practice those core values day in and day out. So how does your doing reflect your being? And then schedule-ize, excuse me, scheduling and prioritizing time for those activities in a very deliberate fashion where you're eliminating distractions. Hmm. Um, hard, right? Yeah. Simple, not easy. I mean, that is grounded. All these principles, nothing I'm going to say, I promise is going to blow anyone's mind, but none of this stuff is easy, which is like kind of what I said. I think a good book or a good coach that at least is authentic in this space isn't going to give you the silver bullet. They're going to tell you stuff that is intuitive, give you language for it, and then hold your hand. And I think this is such a clear example of that. So how does this work in practice? Let's say one of your core values is love. And let's say that you define love as being fully there for the people and pursuits I care deeply about. Well, then how do you practice that? Is it you put your phone off and in another room and keep your computer in your garage during dinner with your family? Is it that you schedule time to work on a creative project for an hour and a half every day, and during that time you go into a room where the door is shut and there are no digital devices? Is it, oh, well, I need a computer to work on my creative pursuit? Well, then you spend $250 on an old, you know, HP and you break the internet card. These are the kinds of things that I believe help facilitate presence. The second thing um, it's important to talk about is more of a mindset shift. So in the book, I write about this is the difference between peanut M&Ms and brown rice and peanut M&Ms and brown rice, right? Let's talk about this. So if I'm sitting in front of a bowl of brown rice or a bowl of peanut M&Ms, I'm going to eat the peanut M&Ms every single time because they taste so much better. But if I eat peanut M&Ms for 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes, 10 days, 20 days, 30 days, God forbid, a couple months, I start feeling like shit. Whereas if I eat brown rice for that time, I feel really nourished and full. And the activities in our life are the same way. We have peanut M&M activities checking social media, refreshing email for the 90th time, God forbid, going to like CNN or Fox News or MSNBC.com. And we have brown rice activities, intimate conversations like this, working on creative projects, engaging in art, deep focus on math, memo, problem solving, you name it. And the brown rice things, they're always less fun right off the bat. But once you groove into doing them, you feel so much better. And to me, presence is about identifying those brown rice activities. And even if taking the first few bites isn't as good as the the dopamine, peanut, M&M stuff, take those first few bites and eventually you start building a lifestyle where you're eating more brown rice than anything.
2: Uh, well, let's talk uh, about patience. This is one of my, my favorite ones because uh, my dad and I have constant arguments about this. So you say the third principle of groundedness is patience. Patience neutralizes our inclination to hurry, rush, and overemphasize acute situations in favor of playing the long game. In doing so, it lends itself to stability, strength, and lasting progress. And it's funny because I see two sort of sides to this when I've talked to people. I have had people who have come to me and said, I want you to help me write a book that will sell a million copies. And I'm like, wait a minute, you have no audience. You've never written a book. I'm like, one, I've never done that. So I'm not going to help you do that. And two, you're going to fail because you're basically setting yourself up to be disappointed right from the start. Um, And then on the flip side of that, my dad gets on my case when I'm impatient about bureaucratic bullshit that I think is unnecessary that prevents me from doing meaningful things. Uh, So, how do you start to cultivate this kind of patience in a world that moves at breakneck pace? Because I, I think the, the thing that I always came back to was something Sam Altman said uh, when they made the Y Combinator curriculum available as a podcast. He said, you know, a lot of founders go into the startup thinking, you know, they're going to do this thing for three or four years and uh, go count their cash on a beach somewhere. He said, an, a long-term view is your greatest competitive advantage, which he defined as 10 years, which feels like a lifetime in the world
1: that we live in today. And the research supports that, you know, the average founder is um, (laughs) no pressure, but the average founder peaks at like age 45. So the reason for that is, um, well, if you think of these two curves and one curve is what I'm going to call fluid intelligence, and that's your ability to be super clever and creative and quick on your feet and think really fast. And that peaks at between 25 and 30 for most people and then starts sloping down. The other curve is what I'm gonna call wisdom. And this is pattern recognition, learning from failures, meeting other people. This curve goes up as you get older. And in most creative pursuits, in most entrepreneurial pursuits, those two curves cross right around 45. So you're quick thinking, you're no longer as sharp as you were when you're 30, but you're still pretty sharp. But now you also have amassed all this wisdom from living life. Excuse me, living life. And I think a lot of people want to immediately crush it. And as a result, they quit early because they don't see those observable achievements that they think that they ought to have after just one year, two year, three years. Now, it's important because sometimes quitting is actually really beneficial. So we're going to slay another, um, another sacred cow in self-help, which is this notion of grit, or Mm -hmm. passion and perseverance stick-to-itiveness. So grit is both really good and really bad. When is grit really good? If you're working on something that you enjoy, that you're good at, and that you have a good fit for. When is grit really bad? If like you at Berkeley just put your head down and don't quit because someone told you that you should always grit it out, well, then grit is really bad. So before you're gritty before you dig in and be patient. You want to have the right fit, which is, again, connection with what you're doing, some level of skill. So the way I write about it in the book is, I use myself as an example, if I would have been a really gritty econ student, there's no way I'd be writing this book. I'd be working a nine to five in accounting miserable somewhere. Whereas if I wasn't a gritty writer, Obviously, I wouldn't be writing this book either. I would have quit when I didn't get into journalism school. I would have stopped writing altogether. So the precursor, the precondition to patience is first identifying, hey, these are the things that matter to me that I like, that I'm good at, and then committing to those things for the long game. So it's like this two-step process. You can almost think of it as wise patience. So rote patience is just saying, I'm going to be patient with everything always. Wise patience is saying, hey, here are the things that I like. I know that the society tells me that I should see observable progress in one year, two year, three years. But what the research shows is that most thing takes five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years to really see that big progress. Mm, wow.
2: Well, in the interest of time, let's talk about vulnerability and deep community together. Uh, you say that vulnerability is about being honest with yourself and others, especially when that means confronting perceived weaknesses and fears, vulnerability has long been a part of traditions like Buddhism, Stoicism, and Taoism. And I think that takes us back to part of the beginning of our conversation uh, about sort of public vulnerability and, you know, this sort of fine line between being a train wreck and being vulnerable. In fact, I, when I realized we we're going to talk about this, I pulled up a quote from Anna Lemke's book, uh, Dopamine Nation. Uh, where she says, the line between honest self disclosure and a manipulative drunkologue is a fine one, including subtle differences in content, tone, cadence, and effect, but you know it when you see it. And I guess you know, from your perspective, uh, particularly somebody who's in the public eye, where is that line? How do they draw it? Because if so you're I the president of the United States, Anna. yeah, if you're the president of the United States, your words have weight that other people's words don't.
1: Well, so I think about this in a few ways. The first is, if you're not the president of the United States, if you're just me or you, there's a big difference between performative vulnerability and the real thing. And performative vulnerability is very calculated, and it feels good when you're doing it. Real vulnerability is not calculated, and generally you don't feel very good when you're doing it. It makes you feel uncomfortable. And I strive towards real vulnerability versus calculated if I have the thought, oh, I'm going to tweet this thing about my experience of depression because I think that you know it's going to resonate and I'm going to get more followers, that's performative bullshit. If I'm in a hole or I feel like someone I know is in a hole and I want to get deep on what it feels like to be depressed, I never actually want to do that. But something inside of me says you ought to do this. That's real vulnerability. Now, if you're the president... Right. It's not great to go on a stage and be like, everything's a train wreck. Everything's going to shit. I'm in over my head. I'm just making (laughs) it up as I go like the rest of you. Even though that's probably what most honest presidents are feeling. So then I think that the practice is asking yourself what you actually want to say and then getting as close to that as possible. And that Mm. goes a long way because the minute that you can kind of drop the facade of performing, the more comfortable in your, skin, in your own skin you feel. And, of course, the more you'll connect with other people and they'll connect with you. Um, I think a moment of that is um, a really good example is, I forgot, unfortunately, they're, they're so numerous, I forgot which school shooting it was. But during a time of his tenure, Barack Obama basically just broke down in tears because Congress couldn't make things happen on any bill with gun control. There had been another school shooting And he just started crying. And he said, this just sucks. And at that moment, I'm like, wow, like, you know, policy stuff aside, I really like this guy. Um, To me, that's an expression of real vulnerability.
2: Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, let's talk about deep community, because I think that, you know, those two really kind of go together. Um, I think Community in particular is interesting to me. You know, in the midst of COVID, when we've all been isolated to our homes, um, you say many digital technologies offer us the illusion of connection while eroding the real thing. We think that if we can tweet, post an alternative text, direct message, or email someone, that we're making a connection and we're doing it in an efficient manner. But this is wishful thinking, and that you know, it's ironic. Uh, part of the reason I moved away from San Diego is like, yeah, thousands of people listen to the show, and I don't have a single friend that I can call on a Friday
1: night to hang out with. Yeah. Ooh. So um, I think that you you hit the nail on the head with that story, that um, it's better to be a celebrity in your neighborhood than a celebrity on the internet. <laughs> Even though being a celebrity on the internet is good and exciting and your dopamine goes and you feel relevant and self-important, but it's not the same thing as your neighbor's taking out their garbage or your garbage for you when you're on vacation, or you sharing a coffee or a bourbon with Joe down the street, or even something as simple as working at the same coffee shop every day and getting to know the regulars and the barista. You know, our species did not evolve to be connected to thousands of people on a screen. Our species evolved to be in smaller groups where we are physically present with each other. And You can't outgrow thousands of years of evolution in 20, 30 years or social media. What? Not even 15 years. So um, that is the importance of deep community. This isn't to say that it's not beneficial to have an online presence. Shit, I met you on the internet. We wouldn't be having this conversation without it. (laughs) It's simply to say that it might be necessary, but it's not sufficient. And even on the internet, there's research that shows that um, building relationships online is beneficial if you then take those relationships offline. Uh So again, this is a prime example. I follow your stuff, you follow my stuff, but now we've taken it to the next level by having this conversation. If I roll through your neck of the woods or you're in Asheville, we meet up in person. There, the internet can be really powerful. If Uh the internet acts as a replacement for that, and that's the end point, then the research shows that it's associated with poor mental health outcomes. Hmm. Well, there's one other
2: part of this that, that intrigues me. So my parents, uh, I remember talking to them about this sometime while I was living in San Diego. And my mom has these very close friends who were supposedly distant relatives, like anybody who's from our part of India apparently is distantly related to us. But they talk to each other daily and they see each other two or three times a week. And I remember thinking, I was like, wait a minute, I have friends who live two exits down. I don't see them three or times a week, two or three times a week. And my dad, when he came to Canada uh, from Australia after he finished his PhD, you know how he met a community of 400 plus people that are uh, from the part of India we're from? He literally opened the phone book, found one Telugu name. uh, That's the language that we speak called the person and just told them, I'm a grad student here. And that person said, oh, well, everybody's at a wedding this weekend, but come to this party next weekend. And that was the start of a 400-person community and friends they have known for 30 years. And this was before the internet. And yet, it seems like generationally, we don't prioritize connecting in person the way that even my parents do. Like, sometimes I feel like they have a more active social life than I do.
1: Yeah, well, I think that that's because... Um Back to heroic individualism, we're so busy playing this game of one upsmanship in um, observable progress and so called productivity that time for building deep community just gets crowded out. I mean, deep community is really inefficient, right? Going through the phone book, calling 400 people with similar last names, having them come over, keeping up those relationships. That is not the same thing as scheduling tweets or working sixteen-hour days to get promoted at the office. So I think that um, back to another principle, you know, all these things are intertwined: brown rice and M and M's. So the M and M's is just pushing yourself at work, getting these little reminders of that you're relevant and you're important and you're doing quote unquote good. Whereas deep community, that's the brown rice, man. It is a slog. It takes time. It takes effort. People disappoint you. People flake out. People don't show up. Um, I remember in my, you know, peak heroic individualism stage, I would get into these intense writing grooves where I wouldn't even want to walk to the coffee shop 10 minutes away because it would like take me out of my productive flow. And looking back (laughs) on myself, then I just feel sorry for myself because it's like, come on, man, like A, you'll get back in that flow and B, if you can't have 20 minutes round trip to walk to a coffee shop, then what's the point of doing this work and making the money anyways? Like, there is none. So um, I think it's realizing that we often optimize our way out of deep community because deep community is not an optimizable thing. Yeah. Well, I know we're, we're probably well over our time here, so let's finish this up by talking. And about one more thing about. here, because I think yeah. it's important. Like, sorry, I try to have skin in the game on all this stuff. Um, you know, so it's a big part of the book. Like I suffered from debilitating OCD and depression. I don't like talking about it. Clearly we haven't really even gone into it. There's vulnerability on community. We moved from the Bay Area to Asheville, North Carolina, which is a small mountain town. A lot of people say Ashland in Oregon. Nope. Asheville, North Carolina. And a big part of it was the pace of life in the Bay Area and the amount that my wife and I would have to work to feel like we could afford to raise a family there would have completely crowded out time for deep community mm-hmm. whereas here we can really build that now do i miss a lot about oakland absolutely it's just the trade off that i'm making because i i believe in the research that i write about and i think a lot of people would be wise and it's a privileged position no doubt to be able to reconsider geography but like do you live in a place where you feel like the environment is conducive to deep community And that doesn't just mean people that you get along with. That also means where you don't have to kill yourself working just to afford living there. I find all these people that talk about how much they love New York or Silicon Valley or San Francisco because of the energy, but then they don't take advantage of any of the things the cities offer because they're just crushing themselves at work all the time. And I've got no horse in this race. I know people that live in those big cities and they love it, but I also know a lot of people that live in those big cities and are quite lonely. And to me it's like, well, then move. Um, I know another mutual friend of ours, Ryan Holiday, talks about this all the time. He moved to a farm an hour outside of Austin. So I think that kind of like presence, deep community also is a factor of the decisions that you make upstream of the moment that you're trying to find a friend or a group of people to hang out with.
2: Yeah. Well, let's wrap this up by talking uh, about movement. Uh, which I, I think w- was fitting that that was the last chapter of the book. Considering uh, you know I was snowboarding all day yesterday, and I remember your email was like how was it? I was like it was the best day I've had in two years, and I came back completely energized, which was the most wonderful feeling. I was like God, this I've the feeling that I've missed. And I, in my mind, I think part of what prevents people from movement is they don't find a way to move that they actually enjoy.
1: Yep, hundred percent. Couldn't agree more. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I'm just yeah, like yes, no. yes, yes. Um, yeah, I mean, I could riff on this forever. Like again, heroic individualism says like you need to run a marathon or you need to do CrossFit and you need to post pictures of yourself vomiting on Instagram. Bullshit. Um, we know based on multiple meta analyses that include over a hundred thousand people that brisk walking, i.e., walking at a pace where speaking in complete sentences becomes challenging, gets you 99% of the way there in terms of the benefits of physical activity. We know that gardening and dancing get you about 95 to 96% of the way there. So if you love CrossFit or running marathons, and I got nothing against either, I used to run marathons and now I strength train, that is great. But oftentimes I think people are scared away from this because they think the bar is that high, when in fact this is just about moving your body and why I, like, enthusiastically um, agreed with you so quickly is because I think most people have this barrier of they think that they have to do something that they don't like. Like, it should feel hard and grueling, and that's just not true. Yeah. Um, I took a lot of people from this journey of doing this training that they feel like they're forcing themselves to do to doing things with their body that they enjoy, and then everything falls into place. Oh yeah. And I think some really good examples are... Things like skiing or snowboarding, where there's a huge skill element and you're in the outdoors. And then also things like walking or hiking, where you don't really even need a skill. Assuming that you don't have a a lower body disability, most anyone can walk or hike. And you can titrate the speed to make the challenge appropriate for you. And another great part about walking or hiking is you can do it with other people. You can do it outdoors in nature. And if you have the balls, you can leave your smartphone in the glove compartment of your car and also realize what it's like not to have that thing on your hip all the time. Now, again, I strength train. I go to a gym where people train hard. I think that's great. I love it. I don't do that for health. I do it for mastery. If all you're interested in is health, find something that you like that elevates your heart rate, ideally something that you can do outside and consistently, and just do that. And don't worry about what all the CrossFit or running bros or cycling people say.
2: Yeah, it's funny because I'm i a surfer, snowboarder. I did CrossFit. And I remember when I went to CrossFit, and I'll tell you the best part of CrossFit was a community. But I remember I would tell the instructors, I'm like, I hate every minute of this, but I love how I leave when I feel. Whereas surfing and snowboarding, it's funny. People are like, this is about exercise. It's like exercise is a f- convenient fringe benefit. You talk to any surfer or snowboarder, they'll tell you it's working out is the last thing on our minds.
1: Yeah. And I feel, you know, it's funny. I feel the same way with strength training. Like it's the community. Um, it's going to sound crazy if you don't do it and I don't surf, but I think that like deadlifting and surfing are probably more connected than people think. Like timing is so important in feeling like the kinetic chain in your body, in the force against the ground. Um, it, it like that is the stuff it, Yes. I mean, I could go on and on. I'm a huge fan of movement. Um, That was a little bit of a back and forth with my publisher, you know? So the first five principles are like these acceptance, patience, presence, vulnerability, community. They're very much rooted in um, evidence based therapies for mental health, they're in wisdom traditions. And, um, you know, back to like being authentic and, and genuine, I felt it would be intellectually dishonest not to include physical activity or movement because the research is there. For that, just as much as any other of these things. And I think that there's this like spiritual benefit that when you get really into a sport, um, it is a way of having these peak experiences that the mystics talk about. Uh, Joseph Campbell, who um, is the foremost expert on mythology and mysticism of ancient times, sadly, he recently passed away, but had this beautiful career writing about myths and mysticism of, um, of all these different lineages and traditions. And he had this famous interview series on PBS with Bill Moyers. If you haven't watched it, you should watch it. You'll love it. And Bill Moyers asks him, he says, hey, have you ever had a mystical experience? Like, have you ever seen God? And Joseph Campbell says, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've been very, very honored and privileged to have been able to, to, to have these experiences. I've had them a couple of times. And Bill Moyer says, you know, were you in a monastery? Were you on a meditation retreat? Were you at a beautiful church or a mosque? And Joseph Campbell says, no, no, I was on the track running 800. (laughs) And this is a guy who devoted his whole life. He's not a track coach. He was never a college runner. He studied myth. But there's something about getting into those flow experiences where you're in your body, and your ego dissipates and it's just you in the wave or you in the mountain or you in the track or you in the bar. And these are such nourishing experiences. They are so good for mind, body, and soul. Wow, um well I have two final questions for you. I feel like you
2: and I could talk for four hours about this stuff. We could have done an episode on each one of these. We could
1: principles. do a part two. I would keep going if um I I know that you know this, but our, our son is home from school because of some COVID stuff in our community. But yeah, yeah let's no keep going sweat. for a minute here. All right.
2: Well, speaking of your son, that the that is actually gonna be our next question. So you have this background where you understand all these different elements of peak performance. You work with high performers. Um and I remember asking Daniel Coyle about this you wrote know, the telecur oh, design. I remember Daniel a little I, bit. Yeah. I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, why the hell didn't my parents tell me to practice for 10,000 hours? And he said, if they had, you would have turned out a, a royal fuck up probably. Um, because he said, this is why often child prodigies don't become successful musicians when they grow up. So knowing all of this information you know, that you do about peak performance, uh, how do you think about raising children without becoming sort of a helicopter parent?
1: Ooh, I think that my job is to give him a safe space to unfold on his own and probably to bite my tongue a lot more than to speak. And I think the things that I will be um, maybe more explicit about that I know our generation, that is me and you didn't get, is that it's okay to feel really sad. It's okay to have periods where nothing feels like it matters Um, despair is not a good emotion, but it's a part of the human experience. And if you feel it, here's what you can do. Like you don't have to judge yourself. You don't have to be scared about being sad. You can just be sad. That's the stuff that we as older millennials, Gen X, we didn't get right. It was all self-esteem, put on a positive face, think positive, the secret, good energy, you know, fake it till you make it. Um, that's the stuff that I hope to course correct in my kid. But everything else, it's just going to be biting my tongue. You know, if you go to youth sports, you can always tell the people that have actually had skin in the game versus those that haven't. So the dads and moms yelling at the umpires and chewing out their kids and sitting on the edge of their seat at a pee-wee football or little league baseball game, those people have never done shit. The people at the top of the bleachers with their hat down over their eyes just quietly watching, those are the people that used to be in the NFL or the NBA. So I think a big part of good parenting is just to step back and yeah, course correct occasionally, but it's really about like creating that space for your kid to explore these things on their own. Beautiful. Well, I have one
2: last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews of the unmistakable creative.
1: What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? I know, and I know that you were gonna ask me this question, and I didn't want to like um I didn't want to have um a plug and play answer. I think it gets back to that authenticity and vulnerability, and well, I'm gonna be a rational optimist to steal your your words rationally, you are unmistakable there is no other organism in the world that has your combination of DNA and life experiences. So in this moment, there is only one of you. And therefore, by definition, Aristotle's rationality, you are unmistakable. And I think doing what you can to express that in a way that is within reason, revisiting something we said earlier, inauthentic, that's enough. Um, And I think that that would be my answer. Amazing. Uh, Well, I can't thank
2: you enough for taking the time to join us and share your story, your wisdom, and your insights with listeners. This has been such a riveting conversation uh, that I felt could have gone on for three hours. Where can people find out more about you, your work, the book, and everything else you're up to?
1: Right. So um, my website is just my name, www.bradstahlberg.com. The only social media platform that I'm on is Twitter, where I'm at Stahlberg. And the book is available wherever books are sold. So local bookstore, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, The Practice of Groundedness. Um, And I also have a relatively newer podcast venture called The Growth Equation that um, aims to take an evidence-based look at uh, true wellness, not the kind of fad wellness that we hear so much about these days.